Hello and welcome to this episode of the ESG Fitness Podcast. This episode is going to be all about things that I have learned from working with thousands of menopausal women and perimenopausal women and from hours and hours and hours, if not days by this point, of research on the menopause because about 75% of my clients are peri or postmenopausal women so I have a fair amount of experience to share and this shouldn't really be surprising because us women will spend about one third of our lives postmenopausal so maybe a slightly higher percentage than that if you include perimenopause and then given that I don't work with people under the age of 18 And actually most of my clients, I mean, I don't think I even have that many in their 20s. So realistically, it's obviously going to be a huge percentage of my client base and a very important thing for me to talk about and something I have been lucky enough to have worked through with thousands of women now. So there is quite literally never a more important time to exercise than peri to postmenopausal stage. And here are some of the benefits of exercising during and after menopause. So decreases in hot flushes, improved mood, improved sleep, aids the ability to achieve and maintain a healthy body weight, supports healthy aging and independence. I think independence, especially as you age. And I know that it's quite hard to think about yourself as you're like 70 or 80, but independence at that point or for as long as possible should be something we're all thinking about from a younger age. It also prevents bone loss, decreases the heightened risk of things like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes that you experience peri and postmenopause. And although perimenopause is the most important time of life to exercise, it's also probably the hardest time as well. And so I have come up with a few reminders for you. So number one is that exercise has been shown to be the most successful, is that the right term? I don't know, but the most successful thing universally to reduce menopausal symptoms. So I'm gonna quote someone who can say that far more eloquently than me, which is a review paper on menopausal treatments. And they concluded that exercise beyond menopause is the only non-controversial and beneficial aspect of lifestyle modification that must be adopted by all. So you can see how important exercise is. The second thing I want you to remember is that you will have to start before you feel like it. And this is one of the hardest things. You will have to take action when you don't feel like it in order to start to feel the benefits which will then become easier as you continue because you'll be feeling the benefits, right? So back to my point about it reducing symptoms, it's like you're gonna have to start when your symptoms are bad in order to reduce the symptoms and once you reduce the symptoms, it then becomes easier to continue to exercise, but starting is really hard. So in that sense, like starting is the hardest part. As I said, diet and exercise is the best thing you can do for your symptoms but the hard part is starting because you have to start before you feel like it so it's getting through the first few days to a week before you start to feel the benefits and as a bit of a side note here many of the diets for menopausal women are quite frankly unsustainable generic shit and that 
tends to set you up for failure or makes things unnecessarily restrictive. And sure, some people will get results which will make you think that it works generically, like it works, my friend did it and got results. But that is classic survivorship bias. So if I got a hundred people to do a shit diet that doesn't really make any sense, but I gave them this kind of random meal plan that randomly cut out foods that they enjoy and pretty much made sure that they would stick to a deficit, some people will get results. And almost through chance or almost through like numbers, right? It's not because the diet is any good. It's mostly through chance that some people will have still got results. And this is the survivorship bias part. You are most likely to hear from them, as in the people that got results, than the other 95% of people who didn't because they feel like they're a failure, so they don't say anything about it. But the couple of people who did get results are like, yeah, this worked for me, it was amazing, you should try it as well. And I will come to this in more detail, but if you encounter any diet plan that is targeted at menopausal women, I would recommend you consider it a bit of a red flag until strongly proven otherwise. And remember, you can always send me screenshots of things if you're not sure, and I'm more than happy to take a look at things for you. Okay, so the third point, the third reminder is that doing something is infinitely better than doing nothing optimal in my opinion is irrelevant what's way more important to consider is what is practical for you you don't need to worry about getting everything perfect or honestly anywhere near perfect doing anything especially if you are starting from a relatively low base re-exercise and activity is so important in fact you get the biggest bang for your buck from the first one hour of exercise you do per week So if you just think of that, like, okay, can I try splitting that up into three 20-minute bouts of exercise? That feels pretty doable, right? And then if we want to, we can move up from there. But please, please, please don't be put off by thinking, oh, it's all too much. Like, if you are doing nothing now, doing something will get you incredible results. So please don't think that you need to be anywhere near perfect, that you need to commit to going to the gym five times a week, that you need to spend hours there, that you even need to go to the gym. Like, there is always something that can be done. And what you'll tend to find is once you start, like, if you're like, oh, I think I might start by doing this three times 20-minute thing Emma was talking about. And I don't want to go to a gym, so I'll just do a couple of things at home. I don't want to get any equipment yet, so I'll just do some bodyweight things at home. Great. I bet you get into that and you start to feel better and you start to feel the benefit and then you're like oh I wonder what would happen if I up those to 30 minutes and maybe I buy a resistance band and then maybe later along the line like oh I'd quite like to try the gym now don't think too far ahead just focus on hey what's the first thing what's the first thing I can do number four is be skeptical so I I kind of just mentioned this re-red flags but it is, it is incredible to see menopause being spoken about more, but there is also a little bit of a, a dark side to this because it's now often used as a bit of a marketing hook, i.e. targeting people when they are struggling most and offering some kind of magic cure with absolutely no evidence. And I guess I can resonate with this a bit because when my back was extremely bad, I really would have done anything. Like I would have thrown money at anything just to see if it might work. And the thing with menopause, it's a, 
it's a great quote-unquote niche, right? It's middle-aged women who are struggling and often feel quite desperate and who also have, you know, middle-aged women, like, generally some disposable income. Okay, that's a great target market to make a supplement or a fad diet or something that we can target specifically at them. So this is just a bit of a... Um, what's the right word? Some advice, basically, to be sceptical and to question it. If it sounds too good to be true, or it's generic, or it says menopause on the title, like, and it's one size fits all, like, that is a big red flag. If someone is making a claim like that, make sure they can back it up with evidence, and if they can't, run them out. Like, if they can't explain why it's going to work, and then further to that, right, so they're not just like, I don't know, a simple answer, like, it works because we've programmed it around menopause. That's not actually really answering the question. Like, you've just reworded your statement in a slightly different way. Like, if if they can't explain things, the likelihood is they don't understand it well enough themselves. And number five, and this kind of leads on from number four, is that we really need to address the symptoms. So all women are different and all women will experience the menopause differently and at different stages of their lives and often for different reasons. And this is why very generic, quote unquote, menopause programs are largely just a marketing ploy. What we need to figure out is what are you struggling with and how can we adapt things to help? Now, there are some universal truths, but what's quite interesting is they're usually not that different than pre-menopause, right? A universal truth is that everybody should be eating enough protein becomes even more important when you're peri or postmenopausal. A universal truth is that everyone will benefit from resistance training. It becomes even more important when you're peri or postmenopausal. Does that actually change the actions that you need to take? No. Like, really, when I'm working with menopausal women, it tends to be, or perimenopausal women, it tends to be focusing on the symptoms that they are struggling with at that time as opposed to anything more generic because they are quote-unquote going through the menopause or menopausal women or need some kind of menopause program. It's more about focusing on the individual and what they are struggling with. And number six is that it's okay to need some extra support. Symptoms can make sticking to your diet and exercise a hell of a lot harder. And it's not that you lack willpower or that you aren't disciplined enough. It's that things are genuinely harder so you may need some more support. And remember that my inbox is always open. I'm also gonna give away something free at the end of this. The link is in the show notes, so hopefully that will help. And if you feel like you need some extra support, you can click the other link, which will be an application via email to tell me a little bit about what you're struggling with and see if I can help. And if I'm not the right person to help, I will find someone who is the right person to help. Okay, so, Another thing that I want to touch on in this episode, and this doesn't flow particularly well, and I am sorry, but I've had about five hours sleep. Okay, maybe a little bit more than that over the last two days. It was my best friend's wedding and it was amazing, but I really wanted to get this out. So (laughs) just to caveat why this doesn't flow, not that any of my other podcasts have ever flowed. So (laughs) there's really no excuse to that. Anyway, a common question is, does menopause directly impact fat loss? So if we break this down a little bit, the only way that anything can directly impact fat loss is by impacting energy balance. So does menopause have an impact on the amount of energy that you expend? 
And the answer is yes, it does via two key mechanisms. So one, most women, now I wanna make sure that this is clear, not all women, especially if you consume enough protein and resistance train, but most women experience loss of muscle mass as they age. So muscle is a metabolically active tissue. So if you have more muscle mass, you burn more calories at rest. And this actually has a relatively small effect. Most people stop there and they're like, muscle mass means that you burn more calories, thus I should eat more or I should eat less or whatever. The truth is like magnitude of effect here is so important. So one kilogram of muscle burns about 10 to 15 calories a day extra. There used to be a claim going around that it was 50 calories a day. Now, obviously, it's not. Now, the other thing to consider is, like, it's quite hard to know in context, like, well, is one kilogram of muscle quite a lot? Or is it not? Or could I put that on in a couple of weeks? Or is that, like, a year's worth of training? Or, you know, how, how do I know this? If you manage to put on five kilograms of muscle, and by the way, that is a lot, and your anabolic potential is reduced peri- and postmenopause. So if you did somehow manage to put on five kilograms of muscle, you have now increased your energy needs per day by like 50 to 75 calories a day. So again, like, is that going to change your life an extra 50 to 75 calories? Probably not. And now you could go further into this argument, which I won't today, but obviously you have to create that muscle in some way. So those calories don't include the calories that you expend building that muscle. But anyway, as you can see, it's not a life-changing amount of extra calories. And the second way that um, menopause directly impacts energy balance is by a direct impact on resting energy expenditure independently of body composition. So we just spoke about how muscle can impact your resting energy expenditure because it is more metabolically active than fat tissue. But... um, this is independent of body composition changes, so independent of muscle mass. Now, this gets a little bit more sciencey because the truth is it is harder to lose fat during menopause and it's not just because of symptoms, although I would say that is by far the biggest factor. You may also need to drop your calories slightly lower too. Massive emphasis on the slightly. So again, the important thing to consider here is the magnitude of effect, so let me explain. A reduction in estrogen levels corresponds with a reduction in total daily energy expenditure, and that, as I said, independent of changes in body composition. However, what the research shows is the magnitude of reduction in resting energy expenditure was, on average, 54 calories a day. And this is the second important part. It was shown to be attenuated by estrogen therapy, so HRT, and resistance training. So in other words, if you are taking HRT and your resistance training, your resting energy expenditure is likely no different than if you weren't menopausal. Now, if you are not taking HRT, then you may have a slightly lower resting energy expenditure, but the real world difference here is likely to be about 54 calories a day, right? So again, a tiny amount. But this is the problem with information on the internet people will read a headline there and be like the menopause impacts your energy expenditure and I can't say well that's not true because it is but when you say okay well by how much and they're like 
a whole 54 calories a day and you're like oh okay I literally have to change nothing like what I don't know what would that be a couple hundred extra steps or like a very small apple maybe a satsuma I don't know but like you know it's not it's not really changing a lot like what's that one one stick of a Kit Kat god enjoy that (laughs) savor that okay now I wanted to move on to something as I said this isn't going to be joined up but there are a few things about menopause I thought would be really important to talk about so I came up with five things that I do with my menopausal clients that actually don't have much evidence but work now what I really want to emphasize here is that none of these have like strong evidence some of them have a fair amount and and have like logical sense behind them but I've worked with thousands of menopausal women and so I wanted to share some of these and there is a pdf of this in the show notes so you can just click that put your email in and then I actually email you again in a week to check how you've got on. I know, amazing, isn't it? And by the way, when you reply to those emails, it is gen- like it is me. To give full context, I do set up an automation. So when you get the PDF, I put you in automation, I see how you did and I think it's seven days, it might be five. But anyway, when you reply to that email, it is me. It's not like a bot, I've just automated that part. Just to fill you all in. Not that anybody cares, anyway. Okay, so the first thing is low-ish carb. So reducing starchy carbs like bread, pasta, potato, etc. And then not just taking those out, but also increasing your veg intake so that you're not reducing food volume. This has the added benefit of being able to prioritize protein too, which leads on to my second thing, which is pre-bed protein. Now there is some science behind this and an extra protein serving before bed and I guess usually before an eight plus hour fast, as in when you're asleep and then before you have breakfast, will certainly help with muscle maintenance. And remember that muscle maintenance becomes harder as you age and especially as you go through menopause. So this is a really good time to get in an extra protein serving. Many of my clients have like a high protein yogurt because it's really easy. Um, I will note that some have found this doesn't work for them. They don't like eating that close to bed and it impacts their sleep. Some are on certain medication that they can't take, uh, sorry, that they can't eat then before they go to bed. So there are some factors to consider. And as I said, all of these are like things that seem to work well for most people, but may not work for you. And that's absolutely fine. And there's always another way around things or another solution. So the third thing is, shorter workouts and do them every other day so one of the reasons for this is that lower estrogen levels often impact recovery from resistance training on top of that definitely lack of sleep or interrupted sleep will also impact recovery from resistance training which again is very common peri and postmenopausal. so i found that shorter sharper workouts every other day work really well and the reason that it's every other day is that you also have this heightened insulin sensitivity from exercise that lasts for about 48 hours when you're fit healthy and young that period is slightly reduced as you age so if you can get in a workout every other day you're keeping some of this heightened insulin sensitivity with frequent muscle stimulation so that works really well um after dinner walks big fan of the postprandial walk 
as is known in the research, this not only aids digestion and helps manage glucose levels because glucose levels are cleared from the blood via insulin, but also independently via the stimulation of GLUT4 via exercise or movement. So GLUT4 is the transporter that takes in glucose from the blood and allows it to be stored safely in the cells. So if you're moving after dinner, it really helps to clear blood glucose independently of relying only on insulin. Plus it makes you more sensitive to insulin to be active as well. And then there is this huge added behavioral element in that it creates a bit of a pause after dinner and then you're less likely to go back to eating again so I don't know if anyone else finds this I think it's the hardest thing for me is stopping eating like I find that much harder than any other time like I can very easily say no to a snack I can very easily like make good choices but it's more like oh I've really enjoyed this meal like I kind of wish there was another half of it or something it's the stopping of eating so if you put a pause in there i.e cool i'll have my dinner and then i'll go out i'll get out the kitchen i'll get in the fresh air i'll get some perspective and then come back home you're much less likely to then go back and eat more so it, it creates that pause after dinner which is good what do they call it pattern interrupt um the next one which is a little bit controversial strict fasting between meals which basically means don't snack between your meals. Again, this helps with digestion. It also helps with enjoyment of meals. I don't know about anybody else, but I enjoy a meal so much more when I'm a little bit hungry before I have the meal. And when I haven't been snacking between then and my, sorry, my last meal and my next meal. And then to add to that, like snacking isn't inherently bad. I'm not demonizing it but I do think that it tends to be mindless eating. So if you are going to snack, sit down, enjoy it, be mindful of it, look forward to it, like the anticipation of food or the anticipation of something you're going to enjoy massively increases the enjoyment of it. So don't just pick something up because it's there, like plan it, have something that you really want. And the, the lack of snacking or the fasting between meals really helps with managing calories as well. I would add that it probably helps with managing blood glucose levels as well and we know that again most not all but most women experience a lower insulin sensitivity throughout peri and postmenopausal periods of their life and that's something also to be aware of so links to the increased risk of type 2 diabetes and then I'll add to that that most clients find that they are actually less hungry when they stop snacking between meals. And I know that's kind of counterintuitive, like what you're eating less, but you're less hungry, but it allows you to stop constantly thinking about food. Like, oh, I've had my lunch. Now I'm not going to eat until dinner time. Like, fine. Or now I'm not going to eat until my 5 p.m. snack before I go to the gym after work. Then you can stop thinking about that. You're way more focused on what you're actually doing and you'll end up with better results. Next up, and you may have realised by now that a lot of these will be useful whether you're going through the menopause or not. I know, shocking. Actually, the same things will get you results. There's just some slight tweaks that need to be made. And I just think things become even more important than they were before. Anyway, this one definitely fits that. So journaling, which is, of course, always important. Journaling will help you identify your values, i.e. what is most important to you and live your life in line with them. 
It will also help you stop making mistakes again and again and again and not learning from them. And then I would add to that with menopause, it's often useful to keep track of how you're feeling, how your mood fluctuates, maybe even like in the same journal if you wanted to, when you're when you do have your period, if you're having a period or not, how frequent that is, what your mood was like beforehand, what your symptoms were like beforehand or after, and how that relates to other areas of your life and maybe your strengths in the gym or you know, you can kind of note down a lot of these things and it really helps you A, just put them down on paper and get them out of your head and B, maybe make sense of a few things and very useful if you're speaking to a doctor as well about symptoms. And then the, the, I was going to say the last one, the second to last one, we're almost there guys, we're almost there, is golden hour, which is something that I find that a lot of my period to postmenopausal clients really struggle with mainly because this time of your life often coincides with the busiest time of your life so women often still have young-ish kids who rely on them but also aging parents who also rely on them and then also a career and often the prime of your career and that means that there's rarely time left for you to focus on you but it's so important that you make it Even if you need to convince yourself to make time for yourself by telling yourself that you can give more to others when you do, which is so true, like you cannot pour from an empty cup. And this time will make you show up better for not only yourself, but everybody around you too. Like showing up in a better mood, having looked after yourself, like it's exactly what people who love you would want for you anyway. And in the immediate sense, like, being around you will be more enjoyable for them and that's also contagious like if you're in a better mood because you've taken some time for yourself then all the time that you spend with other people will also spread to that better mood as well so the golden hour is at least one hour alone time per week where you prioritize you and I'm not going to tell you what to do because you can do whatever brings you joy like some things that my clients do I'm like that sounds like hell for me but they're like I like to go shopping I'm like oh gosh I can think of nothing worse but if that's what fills your cup you go shopping right so you can do what you want it could be that you go for a walk on your own it could be that you sit in a coffee shop and just enjoy yourself it could be that you go and see friends it could be that you take yourself for dinner or that you and when I say go and see friends in alone time I get that that kind of contradicts itself I mean like time where you're not just focused on giving to others where you're trying to fill your own cup so you might get your nails done or get a massage or shop if that's your thing whatever you enjoy doing that makes you feel better and then finally and thank you for getting to this point of the podcast with me support I cannot emphasize enough how useful it is just knowing that you have support whenever you need it someone who will come up with solutions with you and whose sole motivation is to have you feeling your best and to help you get the results that you want so if you know anyone who'd benefit from listening to this episode please send it their way I've left a few links in the show notes that I think will be useful to people one of them is to fill out an application to talk to me about coaching there is absolutely no obligation you just fill in a form and tell me what you're struggling with tell me what your goals are and I will email you and if I can help you great and if I can't I will find somebody who can and the other one is a free pdf of some of the things I've discussed today and how you can action them 
and it will also take you to a bit of a check-in in about a week where I will reach out and see how you've got on over the last week, see if there's anything I can help with. And that is all today. I hope you have enjoyed.